Good. Well, you know, we're eating this book, and if you are sticking to the schedule, that means this past week you finished the book of Leviticus. Yes, and I hope you grabbed your sticker. If not, you can at the info desk. Grab it, wear it proudly. I survived Leviticus. You've done something that not everyone has been able to do. So congratulations. Now, the, the bad news is you're now heading into the book of Numbers. And Numbers has got its challenges as well, but stick with it. It gets better, I, I assure you. And, and it's setting foundation that actually is going to come out. Down, down the road. Now, let me give you a little background, though, where we've been. Uh, about 2000 BC, actually, God comes down here to Ur, Ur, to a man by the name of Abram. And he says, Abram, I'm going to be your God. Doesn't give Abram a lot of choice with this, but Abram buys it. You're going to be my people. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through you, Abram, all the world is going to be blessed. The people in Indonesia, the people in China, the people in in Singapore, the whole world, people he didn't know. All the world is going to be blessed through you. So I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And so Abraham is led by God to Canaan. It's about a thousand mile walk or donkey ride. That's going to take some time. Now he stumps off up here at Haran for a while, but he ends up down here. This is the promised land. It's there. Now when he's there, God comes to him and says, says this, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, I will give it to you. Now, he also is going to say something like this in chapter 15, so after 17, he gives specific boundaries of this promised land. And so, so Abraham is, is hanging out, the only Jew in the world, there's one, he's in the promised land, Canaan, he's there by himself, he gets, gets married, he has a boy, Isaac, God makes the same promise to Isaac and says, this land, it's going to be yours. Then, then Isaac has a boy, God makes a promise to him, Jacob, and says, this is, land is going to be yours. Now Jacob has 12 kids, remember this, and one of them goes down to Egypt to be the prime minister. Meanwhile, you've got Jacob, who's God changed his name to Israel, who had 12 boys, the 12 tribes of Israel. They are living, there's only about 70 of them, but they're hanging out in the Holy Land. They find out that uh, Joseph is in Egypt. Joseph wants to move them down to Egypt because there's a famine. And Jacob is thinking, I don't know if we can go because this land has been promised to us by God. So God comes to Jacob in Genesis 46. He says this, God says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And so they move down to Egypt, and actually, they, they locate right here in the, the, dial, the, the Nile Delta Valley, most fertile land in all of Egypt, because Israel, Jacob and his kids, were going to watch Pharaoh's herds. Now, you know Pharaoh's herds need the best pastures, etc. And so they hang out there. Well, they grow into a nation from 70 people to 1.5, 2 million people. They become enslaved. Moses comes, and you know the 10 plagues and all that. They go out of Egypt. Now, where they cross the Red Sea, nobody has a clue. But somewhere they did, and this little arrow says it's right here. I don't know. But either way, now they know that they're supposed to be going to the promised land. 
They remember the, the pr- promises God made to Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. That's where they're supposed to go. So on the back of their ox carts, you've got promised land or bus bumper stickers. And, and they are looking forward to it. And that, that should be right this way. Let's go this way. But God says, no, 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 not yet. We've got to go down this way. And so he gets them to Mount Sinai. Hangs out there for a year and a half. They're in the middle of the desert. Nobody's around to bother them. And while they're in the desert at Mount Sinai, God gives them the Ten Commandments. And then 600 other commandments. He gives them uh, blueprints for the tabernacle. They build the tabernacle, how to worship him. He gives them holidays. He, he gives them a new culture in Sinai. Well, a year later, Numbers chapter 10, they leave Sinai. And they know where they're going. They're going to the promised land. And so they stop right here at Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is the south door to the promised land. And so they stop there, and they put up camp, and they send their spies into the the land just to check it out. And the people are kind of excited about this. I mean, they've been waiting a long time for this promised land thing. And so they're they're, they're pumped. And so the spies go in, and then they come out, and uh, the people are thinking, oh man, tell us about it. I mean, is it, is it like Disney World or Disneyland? You know, is it more like Epcot or is it like Magic Kingdom? Is this like the French Riviera or, you know, place up in the Poconos? Tell us about this, this promised land. We're sure it's going to be wonderful. And the spies kind of look at each other and then they share what they saw. Now, we'll get into that in a minute. Let me break for just a second. I was having my glasses adjusted this past week. And uh, maybe it's a, no, I think it was this past week. And the uh, gal who adjusted my glasses, she had an incredible diamond ring. I mean, just gorgeous, just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Uh, I don't know if the diamond was this big, but almost it was just beautiful. And I thought out loud, that's a beautiful ring. And so we, we talked about it. And, uh, uh, if you've been shopping for diamonds, and you know that not all diamonds are created equal, right? There are certain standards in value. It's not just size. There are certain standards in values in, in diamonds. And one of, it, one of the standards is clarity or purity. The purer the diamond, the, the more magnificent it's going to reflect the light. So light bounces off the facets. The, more, the diamond does not amplify light. It doesn't make light look like something it's not. But it shines it most clearly, most powerfully. Um, Likewise, if there are impurities in the diamond, then it kind of hinders the reflection. If there are lots of impurities, and you know you hardly see the light really, it's not not brilliant at all. As the diamond, so our faith. The purer our faith, the more we reflect the light of Him. The purer our, our faith, the, the more radiant, the more magnificent, more dazzling he shines through us for other people to see. But when there are impurities in our faith, it kind of hinders the reflection. Now, this passage we're going to look at this morning, it's in uh, Numbers chapter 13. Way forward, Hebrews 3 and 4, the author of Hebrews is looking at that same passage. And he says this passage is an incredible picture of the dangers and the deceptions of impure faith and he challenges his readers challenges us you should examine your faith to ascertain if you've got pure faith or if you've got plastic faith now let me say something on the front end 
None of our faiths are perfect. It'll be perfect when we see Jesus. Until then, we are growing. That's the whole deal. But it can be sharper. It can be purer. And so we want to do what the author of Hebrews suggested we do and examine our faith based on this text. If you've got your Bibles, will you turn with me to Numbers 13? A very sad, sad story in Scripture. We'll come across several sad stories in Scripture, but this is certainly one of them. Because the, the, the folk, remember they're, 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 they're waiting for these spies to get back. Excited about it. Oh, glory to you promised land. The spies get back. And so, well, tell us, tell us, tell us. And so they start to tell. Uh, and let me say this on the front end. The, the, the uh, plastic faith, plastic faith, um, let's, let's read it, we'll get into it. Verse 27, they gave Moses this account. They're talking to the spies. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, Amorites live in the hill country, the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. I said, yeah, we, we, we went in and we, we saw it, and it looks okay, but... Now, what did they see? Well, they, they saw some in, intense war machines. Now, they saw that kind of thing in, in Egypt. What they hadn't seen in Egypt before, though, was, was forts, fortified cities. I mean, Egypt was the biggest, most powerful nation in this whole part of the world. They didn't have to have that uh, but here, they, they saw these cities that looked like, like forts. And they saw these people clad in armor, and, and maybe they snuck up in some bushes and watched them sling their stones at 100 yards and knocking the birds out of the air. And they were thinking, oh man, these guys look serious. They don't look like they're going anywhere real soon, and the whole land is full of, of people. And I don't know what they were thinking. Maybe they were thinking they would get to the promised land and there'd be a big old banner, you know, welcome Israel, you've been waiting. And they'd walk in there and nobody would be there and it's just back in the Garden of Eden. Maybe they thought they would get there and the other people would see them and go, oh, you're right, this is your land. Well, we're just going to go out the back door, enjoy yourself. Maybe they were thinking that God was going to do there in Canaan what he did in Egypt, right? What did he do in Egypt? Decimated the whole nation of Egypt. He took out all their gods. He, 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 he clobbered all the, the Egyptian military. And maybe they were just assuming he was going to do it that way again, but it started to dawn on them. I think God wants us a part of this thing. And so they were like, I'm not, I'm not so sure. That's okay. They were thinking God was going to take them on vacation. And they were going on vacation with God. You know, they're excited. And they, God drops them in the, in the ring, the boxing ring. And there they are in the corner. And they've got their flowered shirts and their, their sunglasses on, their cameras around their necks and their suntan lotion. And there, and the other, other across the ring, in the other corner, there's a bunch of Hulk Hogan-looking guys that are growling at them. Ah, and they got their swords. And they're, <laughs> didn't see this coming. And so they're going, man, I, I don't know. This, this land is not what we... Now... Often with us, aren't we kind of the same way? We want God to do with our problems the way he did it in Egypt. God, just fix it. Just You're big enough, just do it. And God says, no, 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 no. There'll be a day when we go on vacation. 
But this isn't it, so get your armor on, because you're a part of this one. We're saying, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's Well, then, then you, you, you have, um, you often, when you face your giants, you have some bozo, usually a preacher stamp and say, come on, you can do it, right? And this, sure enough, this is what Caleb says. Verse 30 of chapter 13, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and he said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Now he's in the ring too. All these scrawny people with their cameras. And then there's all the Hulk Hogan people and Caleb's looking at them and, I think we can take them. They're like, are you crazy? Are you serious? If you think about it, these guys had been slaves for the last 400 years. They don't have any armor. They don't have any weapons. The only part of a sword they ever touched was the tip. They are thinking, you know, well, this is crazy. We don't have any strategy. We don't know what we're doing it at all. We're going to get killed. And they, they go on to, to share. See, it, it's interesting. A plastic faith will distort their view of, of reality. Just, uh, faithlessness distorts our view of reality. And so look at what the people say in verse 31. But the man who had gone with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report. That's a untrue report about the land. That land's not that great. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's his, yeah, it's supposed to be wonderful. You know how PR stuff works. It's, just, it's really not that good of a thing. The land is overrated. It, it, it devours those who are living in it. Now, I haven't found a single commentator who knows what that line means. Other than to say... That was given to create anxiety and fear with the people. He says that whenever a faithless heart looks at the situation, looks at the problem, it sees it much greater than it really is, right? He says, all the people we saw there are of great size. No, hang, hang on a minute. All the people? Really? Back, if you got your Bibles, you'll see this. I don't have this on the screen. Verse 22. This is when the spies are going through the land. It says, they went through the Negev and came to Hebron. Remember, by the way, underline that Hebron in your Bible. You're going to let it come back to us. Where, count how many tall guys are. Ahiman, Shishai, and Telmai, the descendants of Anak lived. Okay, you got the, am I counting this right? They're, in, they're seeing the giants in Hebron. Ahiman, Shishai and Telmai, three, right? Three. But he's saying over here, all the people we saw there were of great size. But they're all like 15 feet in their, their eyes. They're glowing. They got fangs in their big hair. They're monsters. They're monsters in the land. We're all going to get killed. All the people are like this. And so all the people, they're, they're freaking out because a faithless perspective sees the problems much greater than they really are. Doesn't see reality. Sees it much greater, the problem is much greater. Faithless perspective also sees us not correctly. We see the solution much smaller than we are. He says, and we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Now, you wonder how they found out that they look like grasshoppers to these guys. Did they take a survey? Hey, all you Jebusites, we're just taking a survey. Do we look like ants or ladybugs or grasshoppers? What do you think? I don't think they're projecting, right? It's what we do. 
When God, we know God has called us to do something, I know I should reach out to this person, but I feel like a grasshopper. And I know in their sight, I probably am as well. We do the exact same thing. Now, what was reality? Let's connect some dots with me. Reality is a year ago, Israel and Israel's God wiped out Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful nation in their known world. All of Canaan, all of Mesopotamia, not Babylon, not Assyria. Egypt was it. And their God wiped out Egypt and destroyed all of their gods. And Egypt's war machine, nothing was, was like it. Anything, no, nothing was near it. God wiped out the entire thing when the Red Sea, all their armored vehicles, all of their, their green beret, all of their rangers, all their navy seals, everything was gone. Israel didn't lose one person. You think that word doesn't travel quick? Oh man, it travels quick. How we know that is because in 40 years, when they are going to get into the land, Joshua sends a couple of spies to Jericho, biggest city in, in that land. And a lady there talks to the spies and says, our hearts are melting. We've heard of what you guys did. And we're scared to death. It's interesting. The enemies had more confidence in Israel's God than, than Israel did. One of the greatest um, archaeological uh, finds, I think, in 20th century anyway. 1988, in Armana, it's a tell in, in, in Egypt. It's on the Nile River between Thebes and Memphis. Armana was a palace city. And what they found there in 1988, they found 400 cuneiform tablets. And what these tablets were, is they were letters. Now, they are letters written to Amenhotep and Akhenaton. You don't need to remember the names or how you spell them. But they're the pharaohs of Egypt. And these were letters written to these pharaohs. And they were written, these guys ruled around 1400 BC. Now, we're connecting some dots, so stay with me. 1445, Moses leads Israel out. Forty years later, 1400, Joshua is coming around uh, Jordan, and he's coming in and taking out Canaan. Now, one of the, several of the Amarna letters are anxious letters from where they're from. They are from city-state kings in Canaan. And one of them, several of them actually, is, are saying things like, like, Oh, Amenhotep, oh, Pharaoh. You know that this land, Canaan, is, belongs to you. And we are simply your servants. It seems that Canaan was, say, was a buffer zone. It was a province of Egypt. And Egypt used it like a wall around your city. It was something you were going to have to come through if you were going to try to get to Egypt. It was a buffer province, but it was owned by Egypt. And, and all of the city-state kings paid tribute to Pharaoh. And in these letters, they're saying, you need to come protect us. One of the letters says, we have an invading army, the Habaru, the Hebrews. And they are approaching from Transjordan, the, the east side of Jordan. And they are, your, your, your state in Canaan is endangered. You please, you have to send troops, you have to send assistance. We are in danger because of the Hebrews. Now it's interesting, I'm in Hotep and at Kanantan, they got these letters, obviously. But they didn't send anybody. Why do you think? They didn't want to send anybody. They're already messed with Israel, right? We're not interested in messing with these guys again. Uh, the, the reality was radically different than what the people saw. But a, a faithless heart leads to a distorted view of, of, of reality. 
It just, it just does. And so, so Jacob or uh, Caleb hears this, and, and he he comes in chapter fourteen. They they spies get all the people worked up. They're all crying. They they come up with a plan. We're going to form a coup. We're going to overrun Moses. We're going to dump him. We're going to get a new leader, and we're going to go back to to Egypt. We should have never left that place in the first place. Um, and then I don't have this kind. Of, I have it on the screen, but I'm going to start in verse five. 14, Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there when they just came with their new plan. Joshua, son of Nun, not son of a Nun, he's the son of Nun, that's the guy's dad's name, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. Now, you can't underline that enough. What that means is there was deep, deep grief and anguish. It was, it was, they were, they were ripped apart inside. It was, it was a sign of what was going on on the outside of what was happening inside. They were in great anguish. They were pleading, please don't do this. Don't, don't rebel against God. Look where he's brought us. Don't do this. And so they say, they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. Don't listen to these guys telling you that it's not. It's exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Did I mention it's good? And will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Now, faith. Notice what they say and what they don't say. Real important. Faith is not denying reality, right? They're not saying, oh, come on, there are no sons of Anak there. Oh, come on, the cities are not that big. They're not denying reality. Faith does not pretend the problems are not real. They don't exist. Nor is faith simply um, positive self-talk. They're not saying, well, uh, yeah, there are big people there. And they've got swords and and javelins and bows and arrows and lots of heavy armor and stuff. But can you imagine how much that stuff weighs? I bet we can outrun those guys. You know, they're not, that's not not positive. That's not faith. Uh, Faith simply is putting God into the equation, right? It's looking at life with with, with an understanding of who God is and God's in the middle of it. Hebrews 11.6. He says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that, two things, that God exists, that he's there, that the God of the scripture, glory and holy and infinite and eternal and almighty and omnipresent, that he's there, that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who trust him. And he takes care of those who obey him. Now, if you look through Caleb's response, what's he saying? He's looking at life, he's looking at these issues, but he's taking God into account. Now, so many folk, no, 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 don't miss this, it's important, because these people are all redeemed people. Using New Testament terminology, these are, are saved people, uh, but they're faithless. They're looking at life. They're thinking that their faith is enough maybe to get them to heaven one day, but they're looking at life down here and it has no bearing on right here. They're living their lives as practical atheists. They're looking at the land and they're weighing out the, the big guys with the spears and stuff and the, their grasshopper status and they're going to get stepped on. They, they don't put God in the, in the mix at, at all. Uh, faith takes into account. That's what faith does. That's what it 
looks like. Pure faith. Pure faith says, look out. Or, or look, look up. Uh, plastic faith says, look out, look out. But pure faith says, look up. Where's your focus? Ask yourself. You're going through stuff. We're all going through stuff. Different things at different times. Right now, what you're facing in your heart as you evaluate it, is God a part of the picture at, at all? Are you saying, look out? You go through your life, look out, look out, look out. Or is it look up? God is in the middle of this. How is God in the middle of this? Plastic faith also does something else. Plastic faith says that my faith is, is my business. Uh, pure faith says, no, no, no. My faith is a corporate affair. Now, what happens? This is, this is real important. Because God is really upset because these guys rebel. This is so interesting. Up to this point, y'all, when God comes across an infer- infertile person, that's not a problem for God. When God comes up to Pharaoh, that's not an issue for God. The greatest war machine in the known world, that's not a problem for God. The Red Sea, a piece of cake, on and on and on. Not a problem for God. But Sally here, God is halted. Humanly speaking, when God's people say, no, God is upset. And so these people who said, you know, uh, it's interesting, earlier, I think in verse 4, 3, they say, we should have just died in this desert versus going to the Holy Land and get clobbered by big people. You've got to be really careful what you, what you say, what you hope for, right? I'm going to read this. I don't have this on the screen, but listen. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grump. By the way, they didn't think they were grumbling against God. They were grumbling against Moses and against his leadership. And they were grumbling against the situation and the sons of Anak, not against God. God had a different take on it. I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Oh, please, be real careful. Even though you know these guys were in despair, we've got to be careful what we, what we hope for. Because God doesn't, doesn't forget it. In this, body, in this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who was grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land. I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb and Joshua As for your children that you said would be taken in plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you've rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it's like to have me against you. That's kind of a scary thing. Joshua and Caleb voted to go in the land, right? And Joshua and Caleb, their hearts were were right. That's what God says. They were on the same page as God. But did God let Joshua and Caleb in while the rest of the guys had to go in the desert? No, they're going to get in one day. But for the next 40 years, Joshua and Caleb and their children and their spouses are going to be in the desert, wasting some of the best years of their lives because of their... They're sins. You can't think like so much Western American 21st century. 
My sin is between me and God. Get out of my face. It's just between me and God. No, it's not. No, it's, it's really not. Not at all. In Joshua chapter 7, when they finally got into the land, 40 years later, um, you remember this. The first city they were supposed to take out was Jericho. They did, but God said, as you take out Jericho, please don't touch any of the booty. You'll be able, all the rest of the, the cities you'll be, that will help you, that will be for you, but not here. This one is first fruits. This is, is, is a gift to the, the temple in honor of, of, of God. But Achan, you know, this one guy, just one guy, said, ah, nah, and he sees some gold, he sees a nice robe, and he, he takes it, doesn't tell anybody, hides it under his tent. Doesn't tell anybody. But God knows, of course. Very next battle, Ai, Israel's defeated. 30 Israeli men are killed, which means 30 women are told, your husband's not coming back home. 30 sets of kids are saying, are told, your daddy's not coming back home. 30 families, these will become the first 30 families on Israel's welfare state. The, the entire people, it says that their hearts melted, their confidence in God is, is gone. They began to weep. They began to try to figure out what's going on. The, the leadership is in disarray as Joshua is on his faith, face praying, Oh God, what's happening? Then God comes to him and says, Get off your face, Joshua. It's not the time to pray. The issue is there's sin in the camp. And so they find Achan and he confesses and they get the gold and they get the, the robe. Then they take Achan out and his family and they stone him to death and you say well that's hardly fair I mean they stoned the whole family the kids they, they didn't do anything and those 30 men didn't do anything either if you grew up in an alcoholic home you know what we're talking about you didn't do anything wrong as a kid but today you have the scars of parents who made the decisions they made you grew up in a home where your folks decided to, to split or whatever. As a kid, you didn't do But you've got the scars today. We have this, If you grew up in a legalistic home, you have the scars today. Listen, I grew up in a... a my dad was a smoker, big time. Four packs a day. I didn't even think about it, all the secondary smoke. I didn't even think about it, but everywhere I went, my friends told me, you smell like smoke. It was in my hair, it was in my clothes... I didn't smell it. I was just, you smell like smoke. You cannot live in that environment and not uh, smell like it. Your, your children cannot live in that environment and not smell like your, your sins. This, is, this works with your family. This works with your office. This works with your team. This works with your church. Uh, on, on one level, uh, that which you do will have an impact. It just will. We don't like that. We want my sin to just be between me and God. Well, it's just not. It's, it's a community issue. Now, the good news is your righteousness is also a community issue. And God will bless the nation whose God is the Lord. He will bless the family according to Proverbs if the parents walk close to him. He will bless the church that is pure because the purer our faith the more his light will, will shine forth through it uh, plastic faith it says it's uh, my, my faith is my business uh, pure faith says no it's a corporate thing it's a corporate thing
Also, this is, this is fascinating because plastic faith says no. I wasn't sure how else to word this. But pure faith says yes. Verse 39. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites. Now what he reported to them was they couldn't get in the promised land. They now were going to have to go in the desert and live in the desert until that generation died. They didn't like that. So when Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. I guess. We don't want to go in the desert and die. Early the next morning they went up toward the high hill country. We have sinned, they said. We will go up to the place the Lord promised. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Well, why not? It would have succeeded yesterday. No, no, no. The window is closed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. Well, he was with us yesterday. Yeah, but the window is closed. You will be defeated by your enemies for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption... There's a series of sermons there, isn't there? They went up toward the high hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. And the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Orma. Faithlessness misses opportunities. We think, I don't have to obey in this one, I can obey in the next one. Well, maybe not. We think, I don't have to, to be clean on this today. I'll just be clean tomorrow. Maybe not. Uh, granted, the opportunity looked rough. Giants. and Problem is, we look at that through faithless eyes, and we say, well, we're not stupid. We're discerning. If I go in there with all those giants, I'm going to get killed. And my family will be killed, and we'll be destroyed. And if I'm told I'm supposed to share my faith, but you don't understand, I look like a grasshopper to these guys, and they're big guys, and they're going to laugh at me. And I know God's called me to be pure in my relationships, but if I am, I'm going to lose my boyfriend. And I know I'm supposed to be ethical, but you don't understand my industry. If I'm ethical, I'm going to to lose my position. And and I I know I'm supposed to be kind and nice, but we all know where nice guys finish. and, And that's not going to work. We understand the situation. We are sure. But it's because we've taken God out of the equation. When God's in the equation, radically different. The, the opportunities are, are, are closing. I was street preaching in Chicago. This is 30 years ago. And uh, we were out Saturday night. February, I think. So, I mean, it was cold. It was probably like 10 degrees out. Um, the way we would do it, we'd set up, we were on Rush Street. Rush Street in Chicago is the sophisticated sin area of Chicago. It's, it's, it's the, some of their best clubs and on and on. Well, we would set up on a, on a corner and we would, uh, uh, with a big board, we'd preach a little bit and do some gospel magic and it'd take about 10, 15 minutes and then we would disperse for 15 minutes basically and then come back and do it again. Well, it was, again, it was probably 9 o'clock. And uh, I had walked maybe 15 yards from the, where we set up on the corner. And I, I turned around, and there was a lady standing in front of me. You know, it's all a sophisticated sin, lots, lots of money there. But this gal did not have any money. She was obviously a homeless person. She had newspapers she was trying to wrap around herself to stay warm. She was shaken. Her hair was, and you, you could just tell she was a homeless person. She never said a word to me. She just stood, you know, six inches from me, maybe, and just stared up at me. 
for, for just a moment. And I knew, I knew, I knew, I need to give this gal my coat. I, I need to give her my coat. Pro- I got another one at the dorm, not a big deal. Problem is, I was wearing my letterman coat. And just a couple, I was only a couple years out of high school. And this coat was like symbolic of all the wonderful achievements I had in, in high school. And I thought, oh, I just can't give this lady my coat. because. So I turned away for a second, turned back, thought, oh, I got to give her my coat. I turned back, and she was gone. And I saw her, just down those 15 yards, turn down a side street. And so I, I ran to get her, and I got to the side street, and just a dark side street. She wasn't there. Um... So I just ran down the block. I thought, I've got to see this. I don't know how fast this woman can move, but I'll catch her. Well, she wasn't, she wasn't anywhere. I went back Rush Street for the next several nights looking for this gal, and she wasn't to be seen. And so I still, you know what? I still have my letterman coat, but it's no longer a picture for me of all the wonderful achievements I had in high school, as much as it is an opportunity God gave me that I just straight up blew. I just straight up wasted. He brought me to the promised land. He brought me to an opportunity to give. These guys, they they had the opportunity to enjoy the joy of Canaan. They're going to live in the desert. They had the opportunity to do something significant with their lives. I mean, you, you, can you put, this is, God is going to build in Canaan. This is God's goal, not real estate for, for the Israelites. That's not his plan. His plan was a spiritual headquarters for the world. That the whole, remember, his plan was through you, the whole world would be blessed so they could come and see God. That's his plan. And they had a chance to be a part of that. And they said, no, we're not doing it. And so for the next 40 years, these folk are going to wander around in circles in the desert, they would impact their kids in a, in a hurtful, negative way. We think we're going to be laughed at if we share. You've been in these situations, you know you should share him, and you're going, maybe you don't have another option, because right there, that person, God has been working in their heart. And he says, no, 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 the opportunity is now. The door's going to close. I've been working in their heart, and they're ready now. Or maybe you're in that situation where you know you should do the right thing, but it's so hard. When God says, there's somebody watching who so desperately needs to see somebody do the right thing. And I know when you stand up and you, 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 you stand up for me, you think people are going to laugh. And some of them probably will. But there's somebody that I've been working in their heart. That they're going to take this in a major way. This will be eternal fruit. Now, why we care whether the, the giants in the land like us or not, anyway, I'm, I'm not sure. But it's, it's such a driving thing for us. And God says, the opportunity is now, but it's going to close. It's going to close. Is there, is there a situation where you know God has, has obedience issues, scripture obedience issue? You know he's called you to do something, but you know what? It just doesn't look like it's in my best self-interest. It's just going to cause me grief. This is going to create a little bit of pain. Just don't think I can do it. God says, fine. There's the desert. Please know this. God's going to be with those guys in the desert. Even though they would walk from him, he won't walk from them. He'll still provide for them, still lead them in the circles in the desert. But they will miss his power. They will miss his presence. They will miss seeing God work. They will miss God 
showing and demonstrating how he treats his obedient children. And I can imagine Joshua and Caleb thinking, you know what? If we go back to Egypt, we're going to die. If we, if we stay in the desert, we're going to die. We're going to go to this land. And you know what? We may die in the process. Either way, we're doing something noble. We're bringing in God's kingdom. When we see reality through the eyes of faith, maybe it's not as hard. If you were to go fast forward 40 years from this time, Joshua had led the people. They took the land. When they took the land, they didn't wipe out everybody. They took out the major armies, and then they divvied the land up, and the people who had the land divvied up to them, they needed to do some like mop-up stuff. And so the land has been conquered. They're divvying up the land now. It says, it says uh, Caleb. He says, Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, and I don't have this on the screen, so just listen. You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. And Caleb's talking to Joshua. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly, so that on that day Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. And I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me on that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there. That's the giant people. And their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. He says, I want that piece of land that discouraged everybody else. I want that piece of land where their giants are. Because I know God can work through me. And you know what God does? Fast forward 400 years, you've got another person from Judah with the spirit of Caleb. He goes to the exact same place, Hebron, and, and there's an Anakite there, a, a, a giant person, and he's, he's mocking uh, Israel. He, he's claiming this land for himself, for the enemies of God. And, and Israel's difference is now they are war-experienced. They've got armor. They've got swords. They're all ready. But you know what? They're still quaking in their boots. They're afraid of this guy. And so this, this kid with Caleb's spirit says, what are you guys doing? God, don't you, don't you remember Numbers 13 and 14? God is going to work. This is his land. He's here right now. And before the day is done, Goliath is, is dead on the ground. Fast forward a thousand years later. Another person from the tribe of Judah same tribe as Joshua, Caleb, same tribe as, as David. God's asking him to do something. And it does, looks like there's going to be lots of giants. It does not look like it's going to go well for him. But he says yes, because faith, heart, responds in obedience with yes. And he takes on the, the giants of hell. And before it's all done, he's ushering all of us. He's ushering Joshua and Caleb 
into an eternal promised land. So here's the question that we, we have to ask ourselves today and, and, and on as we move on. Really, do I have the spirit of Caleb? Or do I have a spirit of distrust, of, of, of fear? Do I have, is my faith pure where he can shine through me and use me in this life? Or am I destined myself to do nothing but roam around in the desert, grumbling the whole time, going in circles, making sure this life that he's given me really just doesn't count for anything? Is that where I'm going? Because that's where disobedience takes you. The crazy thing is we think it's going to protect us. Because it's, we think it's in our best interest. But it always, disobedience always leads to the desert and to an insignificant life. 